0: Hey guys, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to take a second to talk to you about 12 Strides and 12 Group Norms for Liberty and Recovery. This is a book by former guest of the show, Asher Azo. And what it is is a deep dive into libertarianism and 12-step philosophy. Not only do you get to learn about how to apply those principles to your very own life, but you also get to see what it looked like for the recovery community going through lockdowns and the COVID hysteria. Um, also included at the end of the book is a fictional story about a man in recovery searching for his own son Um, you can find this book on amazon paperback or it's also available on kindle i will include the link to the book in the show notes page for this episode so please go check it out Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. And I have a great episode lined out for you guys today. This is a very close friend of mine from the uh, Rooms of Recovery. This is Mr. Ben D. And um, I've known Ben for for quite a few years and and have been uh, been fortunate enough to go to events and hang out and get to know the man. And he's got one hell of a story. And one of the things I really like about Ben is that... um, we we both enjoy kind of working through some of the philosophical aspects of recovery and um kind of the way that that he approaches things gets me thinking about some of those some of those areas of recovery that I don't normally necessarily think about and I, I appreciate that I enjoy that you know um a phrase you've heard me say many many times and you'll hear me say it many times more is that iron sharpens iron and so these kinds of relationships that I have in my personal life I value so so very much and um, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation we had because I know that I did so uh without any further ado here is Mr. Ben all right brother ben how are you doing sir
1: i'm good uh, i'm enjoying summertime. time yes traveling going on just got back from glacier national park nice uh it was like 60 degrees and then we landed in dallas and it was 103 so (laughs) (laughs)
0: reality check real quick totally dude i went out to reno Not too long ago. And um, everywhere I went in this uh, hotel, you know, was a convention. And and so there's multiple floors and I would have to walk up the stairs. And like, just being at that higher elevated, you know, location, like, dude, I could not breathe, man. It's very strange how different locations do that to you.
1: Yeah, I was uh, worried about it because I I was asthmatic as a kid. And my first time in the Rockies was, was tough on me but uh, I didn't have any issues.
0: Well, that's good, man. So like, did that, you said you're asthmatic as a kid. Is that something that just like went away?
1: Like, what is that? Um, well, so um, there's a, a couple of components. One is that uh, juvenile asthma can, um, can kind of clear up on its own just as as you get older and, and the lungs kind of strengthen. Um, there's also another funny coincidence, which is I started smoking cigarettes when I was about nine. And I quit in my early twenties. And wouldn't you know, my lungs got better. Huh. Um <laughs> imagine that. It.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> no. right on, man. Well, well, Ben, you are um you have been and continue to be a very um important part of my own life and recovery family and um this is always a pleasure anytime i can get somebody that i hold in such high regard to come on and kind of share who they are and and uh you know what what made our paths cross more or less you know what i mean what makes you you and so just initially you know i'm gonna throw the ball in your court man and um tell us about who
1: you are sure um so I was—you heard a little bit of this—but I um, i was born and raised in Texas, in College Station, which is named uh, after the fact that it had a college and a train station, just to give you an idea what the town looks nice. like. <laughs> nice. And uh, I grew up—I'm um, close with my family. Uh, they're a very healthy family, which I know isn't always uh, common amongst uh, the addiction recovery community. Um, but I always think it's also important to, to not treat uh, addiction as if it was just the consequence of of childhood trauma or, you know, for me that, that's not how it, it played out. Um, I grew up in a Baha'i household, which is a a, it's a major world religion, but it's not really well known um, as, as being a little bit uh more recent in, in history. And while I don't prescribe to it, I do think it had a a pretty positive impact on me growing up. And for anybody who is religious, I do think it's worth uh, taking a look at, uh, even if just from a a scholarly perspective or to know about this other people out there, that for me, um, I can't help but, and not to offend those who are religious, but for me, often when somebody says they're religious, my brain jumps to them being self-righteous. Right. and and kind of, um, I, I mean, I grew up, I still live in the Bible Belt, so uh, there's a, that kind of you can feel that kind of judgment and condemnation, and mm-hmm. that wasn't my personal experience in my household. And part of the relevance is um, it also meant that I had a, a, a drug-free household, I no no recreational drug use of any kind. Um, my my parents and my sisters don't drink or or engage in any other drug use. And so that's kind of how I started off. And um, and one of the moments I remember my my, my thinking and my perspective shifting uh, actually came from uh, a dare lesson. So dare being drug abuse resistance education, which is also like the... Dumbest acronym yes. ever, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I love a good acronym just as much as the other person in it. Like they were like, they were like, oh look, we we made a word. It's the yeah. worst word you can use for that. Um, but my memory is, we're you know we're learning about different categories of drugs and their. Uh, you know, the, the consequences, the, the symptoms and side effects. And there's just this, like, table where you can look at groups and then just go across and, and look at these different descriptions. And I was reading about them, and I came across the word euphoria. I'm in Ooh. fifth grade, so I raised my hand, and I'm like, uh, what is euphoria? And the officer who is was... Uh, teaching the class that day and, and that we gave quite a hard time to uh told me to just look it up in the dictionary so i go to the dictionary and i look up euphoria and i was like that sounds pretty great yeah, <laughs> yeah. <That laughs> um, sounds amazing that's, right that's a <laughs> um, and and so that's you know at, at that point um, it became uh it me um I didn't have connections yet in in fifth grade, but it became a curiosity. And while I I know, you know, now looking back, I know that there are a lot of factors that played into me uh, continuing to use drugs and and that kind of fuel my relationship with them. I do think that a lot of it for me just started out purely as curiosity. Right. I mean, so there was this thing that, um, for my logical brain at that time, it didn't feel that risky or dangerous. Um, because when I, you know, especially kind of picking and choosing what, to, what drug I was initially interested in, um, it didn't seem that dangerous. And, and I, I, I don't blame my, you know, 12-year-old self. Um, looking back, It doesn't, right? Because for me, uh, the experience of addiction, a lot of it is illogical, right? So I I could not understand, you know, choosing drugs where there's not a a high chance of of overdosing. Um, It felt like if you were careful and showed your activities, um, that wasn't much of a danger. And... And so then the the negative consequence that was less left on the list was addiction. And so you try to explain that to someone who hasn't experienced it, and it doesn't make sense. Like it it, it never made sense to me how my willpower couldn't be enough. That mm. that if I if it was causing problems in my life, that I wouldn't just stop. Right. Um, so I felt okay venturing forward and and um and then we know how that story plays out so um occasional use turned into daily use and and uh exploring one drug led into exploring another and and the next thing i know years down the road um i got to be like oh this is what they meant. you know this is uh getting that to experience this like Having a moment where I believe the I wanted nothing more than to stop using, and then within five minutes being like, "No, that wasn't real, right?" What I really yeah. want is the, is the next hit. You know, to to want two opposite things so strongly at the same time, I couldn't mm. have imagined that before I experienced it, and. You know the the other way I've, I've thought about it is, um, you hear this like, "Oh, I could stop whenever I want to," right? And yeah, I still think there's truth to that. The problem is, uh, an addict can't want to, you know. Ooh, that's a it good point, like I was, man. Yeah, I'm just shifting the blame. Yeah. Um, no matter how, what was going on in my life, I on a deep level, I still wanted to keep using, and so that took me, I, um, I got through public school, uh, I had some issues with, with truancy, but grade-wise, I I was, I was fine, I could skate by, and, and I had a sense, um, that I wouldn't make it four years in high school, so I actually took the initiative to, to, uh, take the self-paced kind of joke. uh, classes like, um, whenever I could, and, and I got out of high school in three years, which then, um, coming off of a a, a crazy night, I, uh, when I didn't know what I was going to do next, I decided I did want to give college a try. So I landed myself in college, pretty well-versed in the, the drug world, um, but also really young. Like, so I was 17, living on a college campus away from my home. Um and, like, the go-to expert, <laughs> right? so, Gotcha, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, needless to say, that didn't work out real well. And right. <laughs> it started this kind of uh, pendulous swing in, of course, always identifying the, the wrong problem, right, where mm-hmm. um, I thought a lot of my issues, it was always uh, – there was kind of an outside focus, right? So it was problems with the educational system. Well, uh, I don't need a degree, and I'm just going to go back to I, I managed restaurants, I have 13 years of burrito rolling experience. I can roll a really good burrito, <laughs> um, just so you know, that's ever <laughs> you ever need somebody, dude. Um, I'm
0: keeping that in the bag burner for sure.
1: Like that 100%. will come into play. I, so, um, there were. Some in Oklahoma for a little while, but uh, I think the last one closed down during the pandemic. I started working there when I was 15 years old. And um, and yeah, I can roll, I can roll a big old burrito. But um nice. So I would I would work that job and I was moderately happy. Um, but uh, but there was kind of a like, is this a how long could this keep me happy? And my drug habit was such that that I could hold down a job, and um, and I could kind of ride that line where um, I was making enough money to meet my desires, but just barely, right? So, uh, so very, living a very uh, uh, impoverished lifestyle, even though I was making enough money not to be impoverished, because so much of it was tied up in my drug use. I, I was able to hold down a job, and I was able to more or less make ends meet, but I wasn't happy. And uh, I would then turn around and say, it's because I need a, a, a career, but all the ones the other ones that I have my eyes on are uh, require education. So I'm going to go back and get an education. And then I would flunk out, and I'd go back to the restaurant. And then I'd spend some time at the restaurant, and then I'd go back to college. I go back and forth, and I did it, I think, three times. And um, one of the things that I found out is that if you clunk college um, at a public university, you get put on academic probation. And if you fail to improve your grade, um, you can be academically suspended. So uh, one, one little wake-up call for me was I got suspended from public universities in the state of Texas. um and i was like oh well so now (laughs) now the next time the pendulum swings and i decide i want to go to college uh, that's not going to be an option here for a little bit so that was going on but um more more significant was the internal deterioration um i you know you do know right which is one of the things that can make it difficult to Again, to try to explain it to a twelve-year-old or anybody who hasn't experienced it, there's always going to be this gap in understanding. Mm. Where when I'm talking to someone like you, um, I know there's a bridge across that gap. Right. Right. But um, but I my brain was shooting off in every direction and, and grasping at straws and uh, torturing itself. I I have lots of memories of kind of. Uh, going to sleep at night and you know uh, coming down before passing out and actually having this wave of optimism of, of I'm going to get a good night's sleep and I'm going to start tomorrow it's going to be a new day and I'm going to do things differently and I, I'm putting my plans together as I'm falling asleep But then, right before I fall asleep I would think to myself I've done this before. Mm, and then I woke up that's the up worst
0: man like, oh my god
1: there was this insanity of how many times have I done this? And just really being like, you know, for a moment, I believed it. And then I was staring head on at, I have had this experience hundreds and hundreds of times. This has been going on for months, probably even years at this point. And and that was unsettling. Um, I also started to get very... uh, kind uh, I of, I was at a loss for how to relate to society, including my family, and um, I think one thing for me with drug addiction was when I was kind of trying to balance the scales, it, it, it felt like all I was really risking was self-harm, um, and then as I I got a little bit older, I, I, you know, I did realize that I was letting people down and and harming them them and uh, having unrealistic expectations of them. And so where my brain went was, um, well, the only reason uh, I'm harming people in my life with my choices is because there are people in my life, right? So so if I just get rid of all of the people, then it goes (laughs) back to to being self on. Right, yeah. And it's, um, it's almost humorous to, to look back on it now, but I, I legitimately was, the, the first thing I did uh, clean was attend a school for uh, wilderness uh, emergency medicine training as a prerequisite to go to wilderness survival school. Because my plan was to find a nice little patch of wilderness, and just walk out into it and, and see how long I can make it.
0: Um, Dude, I identify. Yes. <laughs> yes. That
1: was, that was the plan. And um, I I have I, I had um, the, the fortune, I guess, of kind of bringing in my family on my plan. Um, and And there was a gap between what I had been doing and when the school started. So they recommended that I go visit my, my sister. At this point in time, my family was spread out. Right? My parents were living internationally. And my closest sister was like three hours away. So I went and I visited her. And then I hopped on a train and I went up to, to Michigan to visit my oldest sister, mm-hmm. who had gotten married about two months earlier. And her new husband had 14 years clean. And... Um, you know, I come to find out later on that while these family discussions are going on, and and he's new to the family, so he's not on the phone, but he's in the background, like over my sister's shoulder, like, like get him up here. And So he he got me to uh, a twelve step meeting, and when um, I was interested, but then I turned around and I did my emergency medicine training. Happened to stay clean during that, but came back to Michigan and really dug in uh, to the 12-step program and, and got involved. Um, you know, I, I often joke that I uh, showed up to Michigan for a visit with three suitcases, and that visit lasted me about eight years. Um, nice. so, and That's where I, I started putting in the work and um, learning more about a practical solution um, I, I find it fun to kind of philosophize about the the nature of, of addiction, which is you know uh, mental, physical, spiritual, and and uh, social, right? It's, it's, it's a societal mm-hmm. component, um, which is where I think you and I have some shared interests. And um, but before I could really play with any of those, I had to get a, a practical solution in my life, and so I relied on the Wisdom and guidance of, of people who had done similar, and, and I applied myself, and, um, and changes started occurring. And I was able to get back into college. Um, originally, I had this uh, the, the wilderness emergency medicine. I was like, oh, medicine is kind of interesting. So I started out on that trajectory. Um, but then I was like, oh, humans are interesting, but so are squid. And um, so I kind of brought in my focus and uh, studied biology with a cellular molecular focus. Um, and uh, But I worked in ecology, so I was pretty well-rounded. And I was working on a master's degree when my wife finished her uh, bachelor's. And I was kind of floundering. Uh, academia has some some challenges that I'm not well-suited to the whole publisher parish Aspect of of, uh, academia was uh, doesn't suit me very well. I'm not super ambitious. Never been a a very disciplined student. So uh, when she finished, we she went on a job hunt, and it brought us back to the south. Uh, So we moved. She got a new job, and we're uh, pregnant with our first child. So. Uh, I was like, "Oh, I need a job, <laughs> like now." Yeah, no. And um, I, what I had been looking at was the uh, like the publisher parish side of of uh, the collegiate science system, and doing research and wasn't something I was well suited to. I did like the. Uh, the lecturing side and that's where i thought i was headed to work as a lecturer at like a community college but i wasn't done with my my masters and here we had moved so um i was able to uh, be uh, alternatively certified to teach on the high school level which um essentially means i'm in a, a, a setting where you need to know as much or more about how to teach as you do about the subject on the college level, they don't really care that much about how well you can teach. Um, you just need to be an authority in your subject. Uh, mm. So I I got to learn by being in the deep end, um, <laughs> splashing around, and um, I, I picked up quite a bit along the way. And I I mean I have I come from an education family, and my wife is is a much uh, more skilled educator than I am. Uh, but one of the, it's so interesting to me um, that it's where I landed, and that I found a passion for it, and I have no intention of, of leaving the high school classroom anytime soon. Because that is, I, I would have never guessed when I was in high school that that's where I was going to end up, right? Because I I didn't want to be there, right? I was I was working to graduate early, and even with that, I still had truancy charges brought against me because I just I didn't want to be there. And um, so it's been interesting now being back in that environment and seeing the perspective kind of shift. You know, you're, I feel like uh, attitudes towards authority, right? A lot of those of us in the, the recovery community yeah. you know, always a healthy relationships with authority. <laughs> um, but those have to shift really quick when all of a sudden you are the authority, right? Ooh, so parent, yeah. And being a teacher, all of a sudden, it's a little different. And it, it kind of forces, uh, or at least for me, it forced some empathy on me of, oh, this this is not an easy thing to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where how I got to today. And then uh, being in this local area and involved in recovery, our uh, paths crossed and, and uh, I haven't got to spend as much time that I, I would like, but mostly just because the last several times it's just like guaranteed good conversation.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we will, we will rectify that soon without any shadow oh, of a absolutely. doubt. Um, <laughs> but you have, so I mean, obviously, you know, we come from different schools of uh, thought on certain topics. But one of the things that I like about you is you have that desire that I do. I could, you know, that you just want to know the information. You just want to find out where is the other person coming from and I'm very interested in stuff like that myself, you know. And I wonder if more people did that in regards to recovery, in regards to understanding more about how addiction affects us as a society. Uh, and as a group of, you know, people striving for a better way to live, if we wouldn't be a little bit better off, you know, um, I
1: think absolutely would, I think the challenge is that it, uh, it is by its nature, uncomfortable until mm. you practice with it. And so, um, and it's not to say that I can't again, be uncomfortable, but, um, but I under uh, i I wish more people would kind of push through and, and kind of get the experience. Um, but it, I, I do understand the seeking out like-mindedness. Um, uh, but it it's definitely problematic. Right? And, you know, really, uh, yeah, I've been really interested these last couple of years in in how do you go about identifying your own biases. Right, and mm. because they're often they, they are blind spots, and, and I will say that that science, uh, while not perfect, um, is uh, does try to train a different attitude towards uh, uh, we still call it uh, argumentation, but uh, normally when you talk about arguing, it's like uh, right, wrong, winner type of thing. And, uh, and you shared something similar to this. That, um, couple of broadcasts back with the, you know, steel, sharpening steel, um, in, in the sciences, there's a sense of, of you argue your ideas in part to better understand your ideas, right, just to mm. make a stronger argument, um, and I'm not going to pretend that, that scientists are, are these spiritual beings, that they don't all have it down, but it, there's at least that goal. And um, right. I, there's been scientific conferences where people got into fist fights over the classifications of fish. There's a, a famous incident. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so they're, definitely, they're definitely not perfect at it. But um, yeah, you, you know, and then and living, uh, trying to, to focus on principles that, that open mindedness has um, been key for me. But yeah, it's you know some some of that closing off happens at a very uh, unconscious and and um, like gut level, you know? uh, Yeah, I was recently looking at this stuff about um, brainwashing, which isn't really a, a, a real thing, um, but it kind of led to this field of study and and kind of um, when. When sacred um, beliefs are, are kind of a, attacked or brought up, uh, it changes where information is, is moving in the brain. Right. So when, when our very core principles are, um, are a pocket, we actually are less likely to send information to the prefrontal cortex where we're logic we're having logical reasoning and we're gonna have more movement into uh, the amygdala like emotional centers. Mm. and um, and the uh psychology and, and neuroscience is it's all very difficult because there's a whole lot of variables going on but it's an interesting story and, and one that rings true to me which is this sense of the the counter to that is still feeling accepted right so so it's having um, either the, the people offer it to you or having uh, enough like self-assurance that even if this conversation goes awry, uh, it doesn't mean that the... I'm not rejecting you as a human, right? I'm just saying mm. I think differently than you on this topic. And as long as we can kind of express that uh, acceptance, that kind of undercuts the some of the emotional uh, defensive reaction we have to our ideas being challenged. Yeah, man. Which is um, the the whole idea to me. So uh, studying biology, when I and I I teach zoology, so uh, biology, but specifically animals. And one of the things that I've uh, appreciated about that over time is. Um, you know, to better understand my nature and how it can impact things like uh, addiction. You know, understanding my patterns and behaviors that are are leading to problematic uh, actions in my life. One thing I can do, yes, I can better understand myself. But part of that could be better understanding humans. And one perspective that that I uh, hadn't really wasn't really well practiced at was in looking at humans as an animal right so, so taking the same sort of approach we have to studying other animal behavior and looking at humans through that link and um and one of the things that we know uh very well is that humans are extremely social organisms and when i look at you know when i was ready to walk off into the woods and Early on in recovery when people are talking about fear, and I was still like, like, I'm I'm afraid of nothing. We're gonna talk about fear. Yeah. Um, and then finding it like, oh, fear of social rejection is such a driving force for me that um, that I was it was such a driving force, but I was unaware that it was a driving force. Uh, so I I have a, a buddy who used to always say that, the you know, addicts aren't stupid. We're just dumb. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah. You know, for me, like one of the, the problems I we can be, we can actually have such a high emotional intelligence and be so good at socializing that we can, uh, we can use it against ourselves. So one of the, the traps that I had locked myself into was the, the group that I was drawn towards. Um, there was a sense of, of, to fit into that group, the most appealing persona was, I don't care what anybody thinks. I was adopting that persona because I cared what they thought. Right? Yeah. So, my my detachment from um from social acceptance was actually a strategy to gain social acceptance and, and ooh, okay yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 it took me a while to kind of to see through that um and, and i'm sure it, it still sneaks up on me um from time to time but um once i started to kind of accept How much of a a part of of, uh, my being is to to seek out other people? Um, I got a little more comfortable with with the drive that it is in my life. Um, You know, there's this. So a lot of these studies, um, based off of functional um, nuclear magnetic resonance imaging, so kind of a new field, and we, we can debate on how much it's really telling us, but. We can now see in much greater resolution where is blood going in the brain. There's all sorts of fun little studies that have come about, but one of my favorites is that unexpected social rejection. Um, So, the way that they set this up in a laboratory is you're in an MRI and you're playing catch, right? So, you can't see. But okay. you get into a ball thrown to you with it, it, in a group of people. Another right. note to you: part of the trial is that at one point they stop passing the ball to you. And so it's like there's this game of catch, pass it to whoever, and all of a sudden nobody's passing you the ball to you. And what we see is that blood flow goes to the exact same location in the brain as uh, pain, physical pain. So physical pain and sudden, unexpected social rejection are actually activating the same place in the brain. Huh. Um, and it is that place in the brain that the takes effect, Tylenol. Right? So what I tell my teenagers is if you're if you're going to be in a high school romance, you should carry Tylenol in case you get heartbroken. Uh, the science will tell you that it actually will help a little bit with the, uh, the initial heartbreak. So it's It's deeply wired in, in who we are. Um, Dude, that's wild. That is right? wild right there. And there's, wow. there. I mean, there's so much evidence for it um, in, in a variety of ways. Um, us having this conversation, right? So, again, um, based off of, of multiple lines of evidence, uh, speech developed as a, a social adaptation. And it makes, I mean, that makes sense. Right? Why am I talking to not? communicate to another human but um but we when we compare it to uh, auditory communication of of other uh, animals what we see is a correlation to how sophisticated their uh their communication is correlated to how complex their uh, social structures are huh yeah which I can tie back to what um, I had mentioned to you. is one of the things that interests me, which is, um, so when when we talk about uh, drug policy, and, and you and I have talked before, and I know that we share similar opinions on some things, and they have differences, uh, differences in opinion on, on how to get there, but uh, I think that you have pretty similar uh, vision of where we would like to see uh, society and culture uh, shift with, For sure, which is, I think a big part of it is um, risk mitigation, right? So yes, when I, as a, 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 a adolescent, decided that it wasn't that risky, I was wrong because I didn't know, I didn't really understand drug addiction, right? and, and there were elements of it that that had I known maybe I would have assessed it differently. So uh, with my family not using drugs, I I felt like a black sheep, you know, that this was something I decided to do and and I uh, very much kept hidden from them. And so as it became more of a part of my life, they became less a part of my life. Uh, And then it was only after getting clean that I found out, oh, no, the broader story of my family, my nuclear family are the black sheep. You know that that drug addiction and other uh, closely related mental health disorders—they have a long history in my family, and, mm. and I don't think that would have tipped the scales for me. But it—you know—that was information I didn't really have. It was looking at it as uh, a mental health disorder that uh, does have some uh, familial trend, and I'm in a family that suffers from it. So that I, you know, statistically I was more likely to, to struggle when I took that first drug out of curiosity. Um, and so, you know, I'm not to judge what other people are going to do with their lives and, and my experience won't be other people's experience. And, and some people will have positive experiences with drugs. And, and I... Um, on my good days, I don't hold that against them. On my,
0: <laughs> on my man, days, you're a better man than me because like, I well, I, I don't want to say that I don't have those good days too, but I do I feel, say they were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair, fair. Uh, like I, you know, I, I, that just brief pang of jealousy
1: 100%. That's,
0: that somebody else can, dip their toe in that water, not have any negative effects and not have that obsession just ruin their lives. Um,
1: I, and well, this is interesting because I, I don't think that this is, uh, maybe, maybe not white hell approach to it. But for me, while as uncomfortable as that jealousy is, I would rather have that than assuming they are headed towards ruin you know because the, the other the other perspective on it was oh it just hasn't gotten me yet yeah you know, man I, I had periods in my life where it wasn't that problematic right and yeah um, you know, one of my first mentors he, he talked about uh, addiction a lot as a memory uh, memory disease, where that's what i remember this period of my life where the consequences hadn't back up, and, and those are the memories that my brain uh, recalls most often, and I want to trick myself into thinking that that's what I would return to, um, when I no longer believe that's, that's the case. I, that's, I'll return to that torturous falling asleep at night, and with a bag packed, standing on a railroad, planning to walk out into the wilderness. Right. Um, but, uh oh yeah, jealous, 100%. <laughs> And the, but the, that
0: is a good point. You know, like, you know, that um, and I, I would have to agree with that. You know, I, I would much rather take the jealousy than than the other side. And and I'm going to admit it, man, like for a um, particularly before I even started this podcast, I had that thought. My, my, my view on how the world recovers was vastly different than it is today you know, I was a very much so abstinent only type of person, you know, and having had the conversation that I've had on this show has forced me to evolve and forced me to get to that place where it's simply just jealousy, you know, and it's not like, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop for somebody. Cause that's, you know, that ain't right, dude. It's not cool to not that I was wishing it on them, but I was like truly expecting that, you know, for, for them. And that's not, dude, that's no way to look at the world,
1: and, you know. And then also when I can step back and, and and kind of recollect myself, it's also just not very evidence-based. No, um, it's not. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but which is, again, that kind of self bias that I, I still have a hard time understanding the person who has a drink enjoys it and then stops and i'm like but but that means you would enjoy a second one <laughs> <Right>? like, <laughs> <please>. <laughs> yeah um yeah so that that mental process still doesn't quite make sense to me and um and is where the the divide starts to grow but you know i uh in, in the recovery community there can be very different opinions on it i um have run into, and then sure you as, as well, a much more. Oh, uh, well, I tend to think of them as kind of old school, uh, tough love uh, mentality uh, towards what a a person into recovery needs, or what it takes to get into recovery, and um, and that's where I think that some of the ideas of of risk mitigation can get tricky. But it's like if you are Softening the experiences of, of drug addiction that maybe they won't hit bottom or, or realize that a need for help, they, they won't experience just desperation um, on the same level to the same extreme. Right. I don't agree with that approach because, no. um, because a lot of times for, for the person who experiences a high level of, of desperation and then gets clean, there are. That one person are a hundred other that that die or go to a place that they're not coming back from. Right. and And so I do think that there is a a, a bit of a public responsibility to reduce um, the the consequences or the risks of the decision that somebody makes. And that becomes very that becomes especially interesting or adolescence, so uh, teenagers—it's a—that's a tricky thing to define what what is adolescence because for a long time we just uh, described it as hormonal changes, right? It, it's just a, a part of development. You know, in other animals, you tend to just go uh, young to adult. And what's the division? It's uh, sexual maturity. And then in uh, humans and, and other primates, it's a little trickier because there's this kind of this gray area where the, those changes take place over a longer period of time, and that's kind of what we called uh, adolescence. Was just puberty, and more so, what we've been realizing uh, recently is that there's a, a societal component, right? There's how we treat uh, people in that that time of life, and so uh, that can be very different culturally. Uh, but the, again, uh, going back to uh, brain imaging, where a lot of the, those initial changes that we thought were hormonal, uh, they are coinciding simultaneously with uh, the brain maturing. Uh, and specifically, what we've been able to, to uh, pinpoint are what's called dendritic pruning, so or sorry, uh, synaptic pruning, which is... You actually have more connections in your brain at a a younger age um, but they might it's too many right it's it's inefficient so we're getting rid of of some of the connections in our brain and then myelination so um, increasing the speed of signaling those two things happen it's a range but somewhere uh, starting around 10 years of age and and ending somewhere in uh, the mid 20s and so With that change, that physical change of the brain's structure, across the board, uh, and so not just humans, in other animals, we see adolescents um, typified by uh, risk-seeking, or risk-taking, novelty-seeking, and peer relationships. So I think it becomes a tricky period of time to look at something like risk mitigation because they are more likely to take risks um, they're more likely to seek out new experiences yeah so that sounds like trying drugs for um and then you add to that this the uh, heightened focus on on peer relationships um as you know psychologically we think that that has to do with kind of uh developing independence outside of the, the, the family frame and right? so you're finding out who you are outside of just your family um, but again it, the thing that fascinates me is we've seen this in uh, there was this study uh, that I find hilarious which is uh, rats drinking alcohol and um, so rats adult rats and juvenile rats will drink the same amount of alcohol by themselves. But if you put them in a group with their peers, with other juvenile rats, then juvenile rats will actually drink more alcohol. And, huh. And, um, yeah. And part huh. of the thought that, that's going on there for the, the human adolescent is that, so take a, take a 13-year-old who has done has the information at hand and, and doesn't believe that smoking cigarettes is worth the risk. But you put them in a social situation where all of their peers are smoking cigarettes, and they have they've assessed that risk, but they have different priorities. And so the greater risk in that moment is social rejection. It's not that they haven't assessed risk at all, it's just that they've assessed it differently. And, and for them at that time, being uh, a part of their peer group is more important. And it changes the risk calculation. And then you add to that that statistically you are most likely to develop uh, a mental illness during adolescence. That is when they most commonly come on. Um, and then... Statistics on violence and, and, and on and on and on. It's, it can be a very tricky uh, stage of, of life. And I know that's when I started experimenting with drugs. I got clean relatively young. So yes. most of my drug use was in, in adolescence. And one of the things that, that fascinates me now, thinking back to my experience with dare and being dared to explore euphoria um is are we doing are we doing that properly like are we collectively what is our approach as a society towards getting drug information out to the the most susceptible uh demographic and and that's one of those questions where um i i think i can say that we're not doing the best we could but i also Mm -hmm. don't know uh a first step towards improvement i think a huge
0: first step would be to stop false falsely villainizing certain substances or at least putting them on the same pedestal as others i know when i went through dare heroin and weed were on the same tier according to that dare officer. Right. And I very specifically remember smoking weed for my first time ever and thinking, man, they missed the mark on this one. And I just assumed that that was going to hold true for all of them. Now I will tell you that no, (laughs) like they, some of them were pretty close to the mark. You know what I mean? But, uh, I, I, at that point, all caution for trying new substances was out the window, all, all of it, you know? Um, so I think a very, uh, personally, a good first step would be honest education, you know?
1: Yeah. And I, well, that's interesting because just as you're saying that I, I've got, two dots connected for me, which is, um, yeah, honest education, which can be. Really tough to pull off because um, the, there are a lot of individuals in my profession who might bring their own opinions <laughs> to the table. Right. Uh, it can very easily be demoralized right? Um, let alone uh, feeling like you're to, you like, I don't know, uphold or, or preach legalities, right? And so, mm. so, yes, I don't feel like it's. It's just information-based, and um, that information is behind the screen of here's what's legal, and often here's what's right and wrong. And then after all of that, there might be some some information. But it's interesting because I do think, um, you know, earlier you mentioned the idea of, of having better uh, dialogue, better communication about nature of addiction and i i think that's a component as well because when Mm. you're being honest you know i I think the only thing that maybe is gotten there is the sense of a gateway and that's a, a weird and kind of confusing um approach separated away from addiction right yes Where um a gateway drug makes more sense as a phenomenon that occurs in somebody who is an addict and doesn't know it yet. um but again that's a we don't have the we don't currently have enough uh, public understanding to, to have that be a part of the risks that are communicated right so because uh, when i talk to from time to time, about marijuana, um, it is it one hundred percent has is is less has less risk. Um, it has less risk than alcohol,
2: right? Yeah. Um,
1: but but at the same time, like you think it's then it's very easy for them to run to uh, no risk. I'm like, well, that's not that's not true either, right? Um, right. Because I know full blown addicts that It's marijuana. I mean, that's they can get to the same terrible places we do without uh, having done anything else. Yeah. And, um, and then one of those that, that is it's a statistical oddity, right? When you when you talk about marijuana use, it is unlikely. But from my own experience, um, marijuana can trigger marijuana psychosis, or it can trigger uh, latent mental illnesses. I have I grew up with three potheads whose schizophrenia was triggered by smoking pot. And and wow. I know that that's yeah, I know that's a statistical outlier. Like that it's really bizarre that I would have uh, known and grown up with three of them. But from my own personal experience, I'm like, Well, there's a risk, <laughs> right? I mean, right. I got buddies that they, they went off it was a long road back to any semblance of of normalcy for them um, from, from the like I mean I like clinically losing it to the to the point where like we're freaked out and like calm the ambulance or the cops on your buddy because it's like this is something different
0: yeah dude um, that's a that's a whole ordeal then at that point, uh-huh. you know whoa. I'll tell you since Oklahoma um, you know, since we got medical
2: uh-huh.
0: and I've been in outpatient treatment programs, I've been in meetings, I've been in multiple recovery type uh, environments. And since we've got that medical, there is people that show up specifically for um, marijuana, a marijuana addiction. And, you know I I think that it's like you said you know we, we still don't know enough about about this stuff and, and we don't we're kind of getting a real real-time look at you know how this affects the whole population yeah. and I think the best thing that we could possibly do is as that information comes out make it readily available yeah you know um, well, and you being a scientist, I am curious, like, what does it make you feel when you hear the phrase the science is settled? How do you feel about that?
1: Oh. <laughs> so um, it's interesting. I, you know, I uh, today I would consider myself a teacher. I haven't, uh, I have a hard time, you know, um, one of the other interesting, like, social artifacts from running with the, the subculture that I did and the uh, the age I did, and I, I'm willing to bet that you had a similar teenage experience. But um the the like the worst thing you could do in the world was a poser, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. that was <laughs> that was the ultimate insult, and it's like I'll oh, oh. just avoid that at all costs. You can't. <laughs> and and um, there's a little bit of that in me still, where I'm like, um I. I, I think I understand science better than, than most well enough to teach it. I haven't done it in a while, and I, I can't call myself a scientist. It's um, My personal take on it is, like any other uh, institution or, or approach to thinking, it is imperfect. But where it's different is it really tries, right? It, it really tries to be objective and to... Uh, so without getting lost in, in the jargon, uh, this idea of, of likelihood of recurrence, right? That's that's what we build on, is something that is, is likely to recur. Uh, every time you yeah. do it, 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 there's always the outcome, and so that we can say that this, is, this isn't my view or your view. This is what will likely reoccur. And um, so you get into empiricism and, and experimentation. But um, just like the recovery community has a, a communication problem with the broader community uh, the sciences absolutely does as well and when you when you talk to and interact with like really like in the trenches uh, scientists there is a uh, they are some of the most uh, skeptical and questioning individual where where no, like almost nothing is settled to the point where it's like okay ease up a little bit you know like, like right. they are uh, they are ready for everything to be uh, t- turned over and like oh you were wrong about everything um yeah. you know it's it's a fluid deal of, of constantly um uh, of changing ideas and um, one of the hopes is that through education some of that can get across to students because i will say one of the challenges for me for switching to uh public school and a younger age group was um, that the students don't choose my class they do zoology, but in, in my biology classes every high school student has to take that class. and at first i was like i don't i don't want to do that um i've, I've gone full 360 on that uh, no full 180 on that where uh, i'm like you want to do that because scientific thinking um done improperly is it's somewhat weaponized right it's thrown at the populace as um this is how you have to think about that because it's what science says and um there's I mean, science it takes normally a couple of decades before we feel confident any level of confidence in what the evidence is saying. And a lot of that can then be turned over. But uh, flashy headlines get out to the general population long before the scientific community has reached any any sort of consensus. Um, And then unfortunately some things that there is general consensus on um, can be rejected if they challenge a, a core belief a, a sacred uh, belief for individuals so it, it's another one where it's tricky um there's uh, a phenomenon in relating to the uh general public called the the sagan carl sagan where scientists have they they career-wise they have to walk this uh unfortunately tricky uh, tightrope where Uh, Carl Sagan was was a very well-respected scientist in his field. He he did the work. He was a scientist. And then he started writing and and becoming a science communicator. And um, sometimes to get points across, um, you know, he might venture into a field that he's not an expert on. He might water something down for ease of explanation. Uh, And he drew a lot of Kind of back, backlash from the scientific community of being slightly unscientific, and mm-hmm. so they call it the Sagan effect because, um, for to be in the scientific community, you want to be extremely rigorous, but that creates an inability to communicate with the uninitiated, right? But mm-hmm. if you work on being better at communicating with the, the lay public you might get ostracized by the rigorously scientific community um, and I, that's an another just unfortunate component um, to kind of uh, have these conversations um, that are a little bit more more informed and, or at least have that perspective have that scientific perspective as part of of the dialogue like I,
0: I wonder if we couldn't you know, find some way to bring forward that information and just have that, you know, uh, unspoken understanding somehow to, to say, like, look, you know, we're, we're still learning about this stuff, but here's where we're at currently. Um, not too much unlike what they did COVID, granted, you know, the us politici- political, ah, the politics they got involved with that you know is crazy but if there's yeah. some way that you could like get the actual raw information out there and just say look this is an ever evolving field but currently what we're seeing these are the trends um surely that would yeah. be a damn sight better than the bro science that we see <laughs> you know i mean i remember the first time i did heroin the guy who gave me heroin said, Hey man, as long as you don't do this shit for more than three days in a row, you won't get dope sick. And that was gospel. You know what I mean? That was gospel to me at that point. (laughs) Obviously not true at all in the slightest, but that's the best I'd heard, you know, cause like I said, you know, everything that I'd heard came from like politicians or the talking head on TV talking, just, you know, vilifying this stuff. And um, I don't know, man, I'm just kind of, like, a, like we talked about, just kind of like working through things by, by discussing it out loud. Um,
1: Absolutely. Well, and you know, one of the things too that so here uh, where some scientists, some scientific thinkers uh, might disagree with me, but what I hope to get across my students, I know that I often don't because they've got a lot of other things going on in their life. Is, right. Um, they don't need to know the parts of a cell, right? I teach it to them, they get tested over it, but that's not what they need to know. Um, they need to have the ability to evaluate a claim that somebody lays at their feet, right? Ooh. To be able to say, um, that's a conclusion you're drawing based off of some data. Could I see the data? And maybe maybe I disagree with the conclusion. Um, how strong is the data? How many things have been done? What was the sample size? You know, what type of, of evidence is it? That's what I would like to see my students leave high school with. the um, it uh, ability to, to kind of um, challenge without becoming uh, aggressive much what we've been talking about? Have a good conversation without uh, automatically being at arms, right? Um, and also to... Maybe not be so offended when somebody challenges your your line of thinking and asks to see your data or your evidence right but the other thing i tell them too is that um science has it's uh, part of, of my recovery right it's um it, for me recovery is in part about kind of getting this view of the world that works for me where i can spend most of my time content or even happy and i can give to others and um and that worldview, like science that changes and shifts with time but also that um science doesn't stand by itself right it's it's one piece of my worldview. it's a larger percent- uh, per- percentage percentage than, than many other people but it's not the only way in which I process the world. And um, when you really want to talk about kind of being, uh, for me, another big part of becoming comfortable talking with people that have a different perspective than my own is that I might hold views that are contradictory, right? Like, and giving myself the freedom for that, to, to have beliefs that don't entirely make sense but um hold to them i i think that's a part of recovery because if i was just going off of evidence and statistics then um it would have been really difficult to be helpful in early recovery right because my my own experience was i'm going to keep using drugs even when i think i'm going to stop and the statistics say most people who have addiction continue using drugs and um and so I couldn't have a completely analytical scientific approach to that. But I do like it to be a, a part of my worldview. And so you brought this up. I'm a, I'll take this as a segue into an example where um, science, I don't know if it means anything to anybody else. But it, it makes my life just a little bit richer. And um, I had a tendency, had, I have a tendency to overthink and overcomplicate things. And it had to be pointed out to me in early recovery that the most important thing first is like, let's get clean. <laughs> let's do that. Right. Figure out how to do that. And then uh, a little later on down the road, if you want to wax philosophically, uh, go for it. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, in that regards, for me personally, science tells us a lot of really interesting things. It's not going to change the, the reality of experiencing addiction and addiction. Um, I don't think it's drastically going to change how how some people will have to approach uh, Um, there might be more options but I think some people are going to have to choose a solution very similar to what you and I have done and Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I I got into this, it had been gnawing at the back of my head and the first kind of like turning point and um, was this that went to a, a meeting go out to eat afterwards uh fellowship as, as you should and uh, I, it was one of those times of being evaluating and surround yourself if at all possible by people um maybe it's self-deprecating to say people that are smarter than you but that have different strengths different expertise so i got into this argument about whether or not you could have take a, a selfless act, whether you could have a selfless motivation, and I'm arguing it with a lawyer. <laughs> like she was, you know, uh, Ivy League great uh, team, right? And um, and we're having this argument, and and for her, you know, it's kind of like she's going to win all of the semantic points, but I'm like struggling with something because. Um, she is saying, which my own logic had, had uh, said before, that it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible to do anything that, that was selfless, right? That, uh, because even if, if I do something selfless and it makes me feel good, well, then maybe that was my selfish motivation. Um, so that's where the argument started. And what we, uh, where I was like, ooh, was we ran into this, um, at the end of it, I was challenging it with the notion of uh, in nature a, a mother protecting her offspring. And, uh, mm. How is that uh, selfless? Or, uh, how is that selfish? How is it not a selfless act? If, if an animal ends up dying uh, in defense of its offspring, that seems pretty selfless. And her, her uh, rebuttal was that. For the mother her offspring were an extension of herself and i was like oh <laughs> so yeah
2: may, yeah maybe
1: one maybe one thing is one way of looking at it is you can't have a self-worth act but how do you define yourself right what what does your identity incorporate if it can incorporate your family can you extend it beyond that um and in the sciences, there's some interesting work with that. You know, there's uh, we're not as as well defined as we, um, but you know, we're a part of society. We're a part of an ecosystem. We're made up of trillions uh, of, of individual functioning components, so on and so forth. But another place that science stepped in that I found fascinating was um, this that notion of of kind of not just Looking out for your own interests as a what would be favored by uh, evolution through natural selection, but kin selection that you would do whatever is best for your family that would be favored by evolution through natural selection. Uh, so, kin selection was this hypothesis that was uh, thrown about for a little bit, and one of the most interesting uh, offshoots. From kin selection uh, it comes from a, a science hero of mine who died uh, earlier this year or last year, a man named uh, E.O. Wilson. And what I've always found fascinating about E.O. Wilson is that later in his career, he's made these uh, made a lot of very profound observations and speculations about human behavior that have had like a deep impact in my life. And he got there by studying ants. Like uh, the first part of his life he is the ant expert um and the thing is an ant colony is extremely social in a very different way than we are but uh, very very social individual ants stupid collectively they're a pretty miraculous organism including things like uh they have architecture they have uh, farming and ranching, uh, they go to war, they take prisoners, they have uh, burial mounds. All of those things exist within uh, ant colonies. Hmm. And so, how does this uh, simple thing? If if we better understand how they socialize, maybe um, we can take something from that and apply it to humans. And so. The offshoot that he was interested in in kin selection is this idea of in-group out-group selection. Uh, So within a group, the idea is the um, doing what is best for number one will help you rise in the ranks of your group. Right? Everybody's looking out for themselves, competing, doing whatever is best for themselves because that's how you uh, move up within your group. But outgroup selection would actually favor altruism. Because the idea there is that when two separate groups come into conflict, one that is made up of altruistic individuals that are uh, less interested in their own uh, survival, well-being, or, or benefits, uh, as opposed to the groups, that group will work more successfully together. So, um, the analogy kind of thing is if you you had a a platoon of soldiers and you have one where every single soldier in the group is just trying to survive, versus a platoon of soldiers where they are all uh, trying to make sure that their group survives, that group is going to win the battle. Um, So, being an individual that is both within groups and, and those groups could conflict with other groups i have these two poles one that is look out for self and move up and another that says look out for everyone around you so that you are a stronger post and, mm. and i haven't finished digesting what that means for me but it means something <laughs> yeah you know, i know that that um that it helped me kind of uh get a sense of um, being selfless isn't just a, a trick I'm pulling on myself, right? It's yeah. not just something that I do so that I get the dopamine rush for feeling like a good person. Um, there's a, another perspective on it, which says, uh, no, it's something deeply ingrained in what it means to be human is that to succeed as a member of a group. The group that I'm in needs to also be strong, and that requires self-love. And if if I look at that in context of of recovery, you know, there's a sense of of you've got to take care of your own recovery, right? Um, Mm. But at the same time, my recovery relies heavily on 12-step groups, so um, I also need that group to survive. And so I. I want to balance those two things. I want to balance what is the best for my personal recovery? What is the best thing for the recovery?
0: Yeah, dude. So like that is a, um, that's a really, really good point, you know, um, especially in the rooms of 12 steps, you know, like that, that is one of the traditions. Personal recovery depends on 12 step unity. You know, that's, that's part of it. Um, And I can see that in my life as well. Like I, how well I'm doing as as an individual, as a person in my own personal journey of recovery, is heavily reliant upon how well I'm helping other people do the same. Um, and I'm not saying that like you know every person in recovery obviously has to follow on that 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 line, but certainly for me it's very true. So that altruism is actually it's, it's outward, but just as much as it outward is, is outward, it's also inward. But I mean, when you look at your fellow man as an extension of yourself, yeah, dude, this is radical. And I'm going down this rabbit hole now, like you've got me on
1: this thing. I've I've been in that rabbit hole because again, you know, it's one of those, um, so part of the logic there is like, okay, so I'm saying that altruism and recovery is important to me because it helps the recovery community, which then helps me, which goes back to that first argument of this motivation as a selfless motivation. Right. But what I get from what I what I get from being interested in the world around me and from ants is that uh, sense of okay, but it actually only works if it's selfless. Right? Mm-hmm. So so I don't get the personal benefit if it was uh, a selfish act. And, uh, yeah. You could argue that, that my selfless act will benefit me individually, but outgroup selection is arguing that um, the, the group does re- rely on a selfless act. Um, so it, it does have to be for the group before it can turn around and benefit me as an individual. Mm.
0: You brought the stinky cheese, man, with you. This is the good <laughs> stuff. I like this, man. I'm going to rub on this one for a while. This isn't something that gets solved today. Like, this is something I'm going to walk 100%. away and, with.
1: And so, and for me, one of the things that um a, a life without drugs, has has afforded me is uh, to sit with an idea and and be able to come back to it. You know, like, my brain was all over the place. I would think in circles. My thoughts wouldn't actually lead to anything. And and I think about something like you doing this podcast, where I remember one of the things that I felt like I was losing was – my own creativity and membership in this, this uh, subculture, of very creative individuals.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, um, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, my, a good friend of mine early on in recovery, uh, very uh, creative individual, a, a writer and a literature professor. And his point was, if you look at the word creative, a lot of drug addicts feel creative but they don't actually create much, right? They don't actually have the ability to follow through and make things uh, that might be imperfect and put them out in the world and, and um, deal with their insecurities. Uh, are there addicts who can do that? Absolutely. But there are a lot of us who just felt creating but didn't actually have the self-discipline to turn around and create And Mm. I have a hard time thinking that you would have been able to pull off a podcast. Oh, hell no. Hell no. (laughs) Hell no.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Man, that's that's good stuff. Let me one last one last question before we, we start wrapping us up. Oh,
1: I'm ready for it. I I know the question and I'm still not ready for it. Well, not okay. that. Not that one.
0: Not that one. Oh, yet. OK. One but before that. A, one. Okay. Th- yeah. One before that one. This is just one. So the prevailing school of thought in um professional uh mental health and substance abuse services at present is that the opposite of. Uh, addiction is connection. What do you do? You, how how valid do you think that is?
1: The opposite of addiction is connection. It doesn't ring true. To me. <laughs> my, right. Um, I I might have to sit with that for a little while, just because of. Um, but I can tell you my gut reaction, which is. Um, there were times in, in addition where I felt very connected. Yes. Um, I felt yes. connected at the dope house. Um, that was part of what pulled me further into it. Uh, yes. Now, did that? Did those groups always fall apart because um, the individuals need to get high, eventually Trump all? Yeah, sure. But, uh, but connection was a part of it. And then I also think about codependence which uh, many addicts struggle with codependence and codependence is like being overly connected or unhealthfully connected so um i it feels like a desire to simplify something that may be too complicated to simplify i could it would felt better to me if you said something like the opposite of addiction is healthy connections maybe right um but yeah i don't know it didn't uh, it didn't feel like a uh, oh that's that's well said right <laughs> right it, it, it sounds, sounds it's
0: one of those things that sounds slick but for mm-hmm. those of us who speak that hip slick and cool language you know we we it, it just it sounds um false at least oh, you know it, you, once in a row It it was kind of, I came to the same conclusion that you did is a positive connection. Maybe, you know, maybe a positive, but I can tell you right now, um, I have narcotics to thank for my ability to be social because I did not have that. I was very painfully shy and just did not know how to communicate with other people. It was in dealing with those different counterculture groups and and you know having to in order to obviously you know maintain my addiction that I developed that connection and through that connection developed a social skill set you know um so yeah I, I just I wanted to hear your take on it though you yeah know, and was, I would
1: say i I was once very interested in, in opposites and so now I'm like, okay, if I don't agree with that, what would I say is the opposite of addiction? And, okay, nothing is coming to me. But I would say that recovery is the opposite of addiction. Like there's too much overlap there. Um, so I would yeah. say
0: moder- moderation. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the closest I've come up to with it, is moderation is the opposite of addiction. Mm.
1: Well, that gave me some um, think
0: to get um, <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's not perfect by any means but i feel like it's closer than the connection line yeah like the the opposite of addiction is connection feels like live laugh love type language that you put up on the wall of a you know multi-million dollar treatment center right, right. like
1: that's that's what that feels like to me yeah. Um, yeah, and it's one of those where it's rooted in enough truth that i get how some people are to it, because for it sure, definitely, it can definitely be a part of escaping activism, right? Right, right. Um, but but if you're talking full on opposite, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. there yeah. <laughs> not there either.
0: All right, man. Well, Ben, let's get to the question that you may or may not be prepared for, and that I is knew we're coming, and what you prepared. knew were coming. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> Um, I want you to take a second to address that person in the audience who may or may not be listening, who is struggling to find a way out of addiction, particularly that hyper intelligent addict who is out there, who is struggling with, you know, finding that way into recovery.
1: All right. Um, so. Surrender was something that took me a while to uh, to understand on a personal level. And for the high intelligence, I think one of the issues was I had thought about my my life dilemma from every perspective I could, and I didn't see any answers, which then meant it was pointless to ask for help. Right? If no help was available, why ask? Hmm. And what I'm saying is that asking can bring relief, even if help doesn't follow. Mm-hmm. Often you'll be surprised that there's help available uh, you were unaware of. But even if you're right and there is no help available for you, asking brings relief. Um, so if you if you have any inkling that you might need help, um, but just don't really believe it it will uh, it will actually come to fruition, um, ask anyway because what's the harm? Um, if you're foolish? So um, you know what? Just take take that. Uh, ask somebody for help, um, and then I. On a practical level, so much of early recovery and getting clean is feels mysterious to me.
3: <laughs> I, have, yeah. I,
1: have a, I have a better grasp on staying clean, um, getting clean. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't really know. The only bit of, of practical wisdom that I cling to um, is that whole idea of break it down to, to, to five minutes, right? Use, use procrastination to your advantage and just tell yourself, I'm just going to wait five minutes. Mm. And then at the end of that five minutes, try to wait five more um, and, and do that as, as much as you can, uh, knowing that, that it will shift. If you put in enough time, uh, the landscape does shift and, and that five-minute plan it's not a lifelong commitment. Mm. Man,
0: that's good stuff, brother. That's good stuff. Well, I sure do love you, Ben. For real. I got you. Um, you know, we you'd you'd mentioned it before, and you because know, it's it's a common phrase that I like to talk about, but you know, iron sharpens iron. Um, it's because of individuals like you in my personal life. That I'm able to continue down this road, uh, particularly individuals like you who like to entertain some of those batshit crazy ideas that we get in our head. Um, that's important to have like minded individuals in my life. And I'm just really grateful that you'd take the time to not only hang out with a chucklehead like me, but also come on his podcast and share your own story.
1: Oh, man, I loved it. I- flattered to be invited on and uh, and i will be feeling sharper as well
0: right on man when you tell me when to come back on buddy you just give me a ring do. all right brother have a good night okay. all right there you go ben thank you so much brother for coming on uh thank you guys for listening and you know there's there's a lot of information that's there um if you do not have a, a friendships you know that bring value to you uh, in the way that like Ben and, and others in my life bring value to me. Like guys go out and find that. Like that is such an important part of the human experience. You know, um as you know Ben kind of pointed out and we both discussed is that humans are very social creatures. You know, that that is a biological thing within us that we need and, and crave. And so um yeah. Anyways, uh thank you guys for tuning in and I hope that wherever you're at, you're having a fun and safe fourth of July uh, enjoy this weekend, man. Go out there and and find that freedom in your life that you have. Find that liberty. Hold on to it and appreciate it. And most of all, just be safe. And um, I'm going to bring you guys into the song of the day. This is a really fun, kind of like old folksy type of, I don't know. I don't even know how you describe this genre, but I really enjoy it. This guy's name is Nick Shoulders and the song's called uh, Snakes and Waterfalls. And I don't know, man. I really dig it a lot. I hope that you guys do too. Um, Like I said, have fun, be safe out there, and we will see you guys next week. Big love.